Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to podcast number 42 with Ronan Rescue. And this podcast, some first for us. It's our first longest podcast running in just about an hour and 50 minutes. I think you're going to find it well worth it though. It is also the first time we've had three people on at once. We've got Tom Wood and Sean Kogan of Harkin Elevated Sprat fame notoriety. And after a couple quick intro questions regarding the Sprat Conference and what's been going on over at Harkin recently, they get into the rescue that they performed off of the coast of Georgia on the overturned motor vessel, the Golden Ray. You might have seen some of it on the news, you might have seen some of it on Facebook or other social media. Tom did a bit of a presentation on it at Sprat, but uh, we hit chat with them, we get you know, the techniques and some of the things that were running through their mind while they were pulling those four people out of the bottom of the boat. So here we go. Well, on the podcast today, we've got Tom Wood and Sean Kogan back, both of Harkin fame, and they have been extremely busy, especially since the last time I spoke to Sean, making ninjas and clutches and rappelling on boats and doing grimp days and sprat conferences and of course, performing the odd rescue here and there. How are you two doing today, gentlemen? Uh, doing well, Mark. <laughs> Thanks awesome. for having us. Yeah, just trying to avoid talking over each other. This is tough. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. You almost have to give alphanumeric designations and answer alphanumerically like you do on comms channels. <laughs> so I'll, uh, I'll try to make it a little easier by addressing one or the other of you on this. It's our first three-person podcast, so everybody out there, bear with us, please. Um, And there's my alert saying, call Tom and Sean. Um, (laughs) So, uh, Harkin, ninjas, clutches, and I guess I'll throw this out to Sean to begin with. Um, The clutch is out. The last time we spoke, it was just coming out, and you're now in production what can you tell me about that? Have we got 12 and a halfs coming out? Is things going the way you wanted them to, Sean? Oh, man. Start it right out with a loaded question, huh? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, things are going great. The demand is the demand has been shown across the world, and, um, you know, the, the, the tool has proven to do what we intended it to do. And, and yeah, we do have uh, the intention of uh, the – the 12.5 coming out soon. I won't give too much of a date range, but uh, you know the uh, the the folks back at the shop and in engineering and in production are hard at work uh, going through the paces to uh, to launch that as a new project this year. So um, yeah, things are going well. The clutches uh, the the clutches turned out to be quite the device. Right on. I know we used four of them in uh, Grip Japan. Thank you very much for the prototypes and the. Uh, samplers there it was uh definitely a game changer and i guess for you tom i mean you'd be kidding anybody that listens to this if you you know said that you didn't have any knowledge or influence of any of this before you came on with harkin obviously you've been involved really deeply in this industry for a long time what's it been like for you though coming into harkin kind of you know ninja clutch coming out elevated safety boat rescues i mean it's like you just stepped out of the fire into the the bigger fire almost. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, a fantastic transition. Uh, 
I just can't speak highly enough of all the folks that I've been working with uh, for a little over a year now. Uh, just been a good switch for me. Made me really get back out on the sharp end a lot more than I had been in the past. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to make a switch from my previous job, which I loved, but uh, just time to move on. Uh, but my big goal was to get more out of the training environment, get more out on the sharp end uh, on jobs, uh, you know, uh, on trainings, on everything. And I've got that in spades <laughs> in the last year. So it's it's been really good for me and good for my head to kind of, like I said, just be back out on the sharp end. That's what I was really looking for and uh, been really great working with Elevated and Harkin to, to make that happen. Yeah, getting your hands on the tools again. That's always um, it's kind of what we all started this for, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, Sean, um, you guys have been helping with salvage operations for a little while. Um, can you give just a real quick on that? Well, yeah, you know, this actually all started off as a, as what we thought to be a a salvage call. Um, So, you know, just going a little bit of background of, of how that came up and, you know, it'd be uh, uh, right away, just need to to mention where we, we got into this in the first place. But um, uh, one of our good friends, Tim Ferris over at Defiant Marine, um, gave us a call to that there was, you know, there was a, kind of a rare occurrence in that um, there was a ship that capsized, but the majority of it was above water. So uh, Tim's specialty is heavy salvage and, you know, he's just so dialed and seeing the big picture of things, but, you know, typically he, his crew and, and the expertise mm-hmm. they bring is not only how to dissect a project like that, but, is is really the the diving expertise and and everything subsea um so when the golden ray went over we he gave uh he gave me a call on sunday morning of september 8th and um you know no one no one really knew what we were about to get into but uh the initial call was really just hey you know um here's here's a couple of phone calls that you need to make in the next hour while uh, what we refer to as some of the grown-ups are are on the planes heading to the site to to assess what's going on, um, and so everything kind of unfolded that afternoon. And and really, we've been uh, elevated safety and defiant marine and um, and Ronin as well. For gosh, you guys were out here for three or four months of helping us out with this. Um, so yeah, it's it's been. It's kind of been a crazy trip. Is is the only way I can put it. It's uh, every day is a new problem, and every day we just show up and offer our assistance, see what we can do to help. Um, we're kind of a small potato contractor in this greater scheme of things, but we're we're happy to be here and learning from it. So, um, yeah. So here we are, still in Georgia. There you go. And how many other rope access companies out there right now could say they have that kind of experience in salvage operations. I'm thinking probably not many. You know, it's hard to say. I, you know, every time I make any kind of assumptions like that, I, I, you know, it, the minute I'll say it or the minute I think it, you know, I'll run into a group of guys that they've been doing this longer than I ever knew it existed. And so, um, for, for what I know in the U S you know, not, not too many, but, 
there's there's plenty of guys that work offshore and see some pretty crazy things and have probably gotten involved in you know what what could easily be considered salvage work just you know this one kind of caught the spotlight i guess it's uh it's one of the larger salvages that has happened in the u.s um as far as maritime history in the the coastal u.s so um and it's you know it's in a a very um really honestly this area is just spectacular the barrier islands of georgia is is just such a such an awesome place to visit so it obviously gets a lot of tourism attraction and a lot of vacation homes and um you know people like to spend their time here so the fact that this uh is in plain view from the front porch of people's beach houses from both saint simon's island and on jekyll island i think just you know gave it a little bit different level of attention but um as far as salvage goes i mean this stuff is this stuff is happening you know all the time so making any assumptions of who's doing what out there i just i don't know the world well enough to even start you know it's just that you know oftentimes these are the guys that go out and do things in the middle of the ocean where no one can see and in the dark of night and no one would ever know they're there but they're out slugging away at it absolutely i actually had an old history professor and i think it was more of a like a colloquialism or a, a saying than actual fact but his kind of claim was there's so many sunk ships out there that if you laid them all up on top of each other and lined them up, you could walk from North America to Europe and not get your feet wet. <laughs> so somebody's out there doing it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And we'll get back to the ship in a little bit, just as a kind of some foreshadowing there when the rescue that occurred. But change gears a little bit. We talk in rope access. Tom, you just came back from Sprat, and there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that do rope access and would be kind of curious as to, you know, what's a quick and dirty on some of the new things that are coming down the pipe from Sprat right now? Yeah, um, actually uh, a fair bit. Um, as most folks know by now, uh, last April, we went ahead and changed the requirements and cert requirements in terms of uh, levels one, two, and three, some additional skills. And uh, kind of as we uh, expected, uh, there's been a slight uptick in uh, percentage of uh, failures uh, for folks going for levels one, two, and three. So in the past, um, you know, we were pretty comfortable, well, not comfortable, that's not the right word, but consistently we were staying at around 11 or 12% uh, of every uh evaluation that started ending ending with a failure for somebody and that was internationally and now we're a little bit up over 14 percent so as we suspected uh there's a, a few more failures since we've increased the difficulty in some of the levels but i would also probably add that that's just about as much the uh i won't say fault that's not really the, where i'm going with this but trainers are catching up with that and you know there's always going to be a little bit of a lag time with folks picking things up in terms of how they can pass that on through training so some of that's uh what we've observed uh internationally we've got a lot more going on now uh sprat is uh truly becoming a global rope access organization i believe we're working in 40 plus companies at the moment uh we're working on plans to get more evaluators uh in different countries where they the market's very small but there's a high demand for folks to uh, get certified rope access. 
So we're trying to figure out how we can put uh, some of the ambassadors that the international committee has been working on strategically in places like like in Poland and places like that where we've got some boots on the ground there and there's interest. Uh, Spratt's working with that. We've also decided to become a member of NATE, the National Association of Tower Erectors. Uh, so we were just at the NATE show last week. Um, that was very well received and very successful so with telecom and all the 5g build out that's going on you know we want to make sure that we're right there in the middle of it with rope access for controlled descent for those folks um updating all of our documents as much as we can you know get things moving ahead forward and not overwhelm our members so yeah we've we've got a lot on the plate and, and you know being a board member too there's a lot of things we're constantly working on kind of that a lot of folks aren't aware of but you know our goal is always to make sure that we keep the interest of the membership uh, first and foremost in what we're trying to do and put aside all of our own personal thoughts or agendas on a lot of the things that we talk about and just try to work to do what's best for the technicians because that's what we care about the most. No, that's great. And you mentioned a couple of things. Um, I know there's a French and a Spanish either out or out shortly, um, eval and workbook sort of thing coming from Spratt. Yes. Yeah. We've, uh, got some translation policies going on right now where we've got things uh you know the written tests and some of the defined terms and things like that uh right i believe we have french spanish uh mandarin and we're working on a couple others and uh, and coming up with a translation policy that can get the information out to people quicker um so like official translations versus you know uh not official translations so obviously the official translations take a lot more time and money and effort. So that's one of the ways we're trying to support international growth is through all those. Might come in useful, say, the end of May, beginning of June when we're in Belgium. <laughs> yeah, do you, you think? You think? Yeah, no <laughs> yeah that'll, be, that'll be pretty interesting. I'm a new evaluator, so it'll it's kind of going to be fun to do one of my very first ones in French. That'll be interesting. So. <laughs> Oh, Xavier's there. He'll help you out. And Kevin's staying the extra two days. And, but Kevin knows no French, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'll just speak loudly and move it, use his hands a lot more. Exactly. So um, I guess I'll turn the conversation more over to you two now. Uh, you were involved in the rescue of some crew members on that ship. And, I mean, I'd love to hear it. I wasn't at Spratt, so I didn't miss that presentation. I know the people that are listening to this, I mean, we're getting you know, a thousand listens a, a week right now on our podcast. And most of them are about either like talking with uh, uh, Mika the other day about the recovery they did or talking with Ken about a recovery they did. A lot of people are interested in these rescues. They don't seem to be a lot of rescues of certain types anymore. And people want to learn from what other people are doing and hear about it. So I'll kind of turn it over to you two on that note, if you can uh, figure out between the two of you how you want to deliver it. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> the silence. Well, Sean, Sean has, Sean's got his fingerprints all over everything on this. So it happened as a result of some great connections that Sean had years ago. Ferris from Defiant, you know, we wouldn't be here if it weren't, you know, for that relationship. So I think it's pretty important to kind of mention that you know, a lot of this came about because of just some good relationships. And, and I think that's one of the things that I've really liked about what we're doing now with, with Harkin and Elevated is we're working on building relationships and we take a, a lot less adversarial approach to everything that we do and try to work, you know, in uh, 
tandem with folks instead of against them. And I think as a result of that, that's because of the culture that Sean built around a lot of this uh, when he first came on to Harkin. And so, you know, I think it's, you know, only proper to give props to, you know, Sean for getting this thing all started because, you know, I'll be honest, you know, that's the relationship that I think that played a large part in saving four people's lives, you know, as a result. So you just never know where this stuff goes, right, Sean? Yeah, that was a good lead in. I, I can't really take credit for it, but, uh, you know, it, it, I'm just kind of going through the rewind wheel in, in my head here. And um, it's it's pretty ironic that, uh, you know, I can remember sitting around a campfire with the two of you, uh, what, eight years ago? Um, and and what did what did we stay up all night having having a drinking defiant whiskey right you know (laughs) (laughs) just just over the alabama border there so um so yeah and a lot of this is you know this is the same way that um uh tom just uh very nicely gave me some credit on that I'd, i'd i would have to pass that along to um you know someone i i hold in the highest regard in terms of respect with uh, with friendship and and business and you know really just one of one of the people of one of one of the first in my life that was somebody who wasn't my father's age who was a mentor to me right away um in tim ferris uh we 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 met by chance in a furniture gallery in Asheville, North Carolina. And a a couple of weeks later, um, he gave me a shot to come and do some carpentry work at when he was finishing up the distillery for, um, the whiskey operation. And, um, but anyway, the, the way that he runs a business has, you know, everything is relationship based and everything is, you know, trusting people to do exactly what um what they say they can and or or what they prove that they can and so um you know and uh, really i i had mentioned it before there's i guess with tim i i've worked with tim in the past i i did a job in alaska and you know i was i was a grunt um on a salvage team for defiant marine and Um, you know, I don't really know why he gave me a chance on that with my skill set compared to the other guys on that crew. I, but it was, you know, uh, January and February in Dutch Harbor, Alaska, and we were working on an oil rig and, and, you know, I was really good at shoveling paths, (laughs) of snow out of you know so other actual salvers could do their job and that that's what i did on night shift for about a month and a half is shovel snow um and just try to learn things from some of these these guys are just some of the the highest mix of skill sets that you could imagine um you know salvage is one of those places where you kind of you can kind of still work like your grandfather did where you have to be able to be a plumber be an electrician be um be a rigger be a mechanic you know whatever the case whatever the problem that presents itself which are many is you know try to break it down into a logical order and then start to apply the skills that need to happen to to deconstruct the problem and then to move forward with it um and so Tim has always kind of established a relationship in my mind where if I, if, 
if if my phone rings and it's Tim Ferriss, I, you better answer it. And and if he asks you to go somewhere, then you know we'll we'll figure out the details afterwards. But the bag's already packed, and my answer is always yes. And I think that's the kind of loyalty that his relationship building has built in a lot of the people on this project now. Um, you know, people that are just willing to drop what they're doing and and go follow his lead. Um, and so that's exactly what I did on September 8th. Um, Tim called. He had already been mobilized by um, by the prime, prime salvage contractors involved. Um, and so, you know, uh, like I said before, it was kind of a oddball case of a salvage job where, you know, typically when ships go over, they're going to sink. Um, this one just happened to be in a location where it, there, there wasn't the water depth to, you know, for the entire ship to go submerged. And this is a, this is a car carrier. Um, it's got over 4,000 cars on board still to this day. Um, and so Tim's first phone call was, you know, the first to me anyway, was to say, Hey, you know, this is a really oddball project. I could see your guys coming in and, and helping out with this somehow there, this is, this is going to require some rope access, you know, and, and he gave me a list of phone calls to make and said, you know, he was already on his way to Georgia. And, um, so I, I got on the phone and made a few phone calls and, um, and luckily it was with one of the contractors that we had crossed over with in Alaska. So I'd had a little bit of history and able to, um, kind of reintroduce myself to those guys and, um, and then sit and wait, you know, um, because there was, like I had mentioned before, we, you know, we're, we're kind of a very small role in this, a very assistance role, if you will. Um, so the, the main decision makers were still in the air, um, on their way to Georgia. So no one could say yes or no to bringing in rope access, uh, until, you know, until some of the, the big dogs landed, you know? So, um, anyway, we got a call back in a few hours and by that time I had already loaded the car and, um, grabbed one of our guys here. Uh, one of my best friends in North Carolina, who I've shared a shop with for years in Aaron Bailey. And, um, we just took off, you know, we went to Georgia thinking we were going to go start in on a salvage job. Um, I guess it was about halfway there that Tim called back and said, Hey, you know, uh, things have developed. Coast Guard has worked all morning to, um, throughout the night and all morning to try to, um, evacuate as many personnel as they can from the ship, but there seems to be four missing on the headcount. Um, and that, that was just one of those moments where you're, you know, you're driving along thinking you're going to go to work and then you realize that, you're going to go to work for much different reasons. So, um, yeah, we, we ended up getting into, uh, Brunswick, Georgia that night and met with the team for the initial salvage response. And it was confirmed that, um, there was some tapping coming from somewhere in the, in the, the prop shaft area, the keel of the ship where we could assume was the engine room, um, you know, just on every hour on the hour, uh, the, the guys from Moran towing were, um, 
were in support of the vessel. So, you know, they, they were just monitoring signs of life really. And, you know, so obviously, I mean, and this is one of those things, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to claim to be like a, a rescue guy. I'm a, I do rope access work, um, <coughs> especially in comparison to, you know, on the phone with you two guys who, you know, Mark, you do it professionally and Tom, you volunteer most of your free time to go save people out of the backcountry and Alpine and, and, you know, the guys we work with in Chicago at Elevated Safety, I mean, they're, they're all, they all show up every day and do real crazy things all day, every day, and don't ever take credit for it. So this is always a, since this has come up, this has been kind of a weird topic for me because it's, um, I really just was going there with the intent of working with Defiant Marine on a salvage job and it ended up being something else. So, um, but yeah, I, you know, we, so I guess when I found out that there was a rescue scope involved on the same car ride, I then made the phone call to Tom of both, Hey, what do I do? And is there any way in the world you could be here for this? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, is it, Tom on the other on the other side of my industrial experience has been a mentor and teacher and friend on the rope access um, path that we've taken. And and so you know, it was kind of I basically called Tom saying, "Look, I I just need somebody to talk me through this." And and he said, I'll, "I'm looking at flights right now. I can be there." tomorrow morning at, you know, I'll, I'll get the first flight out. I'll be there tomorrow morning. Um, and so, and that was, you know, I, I guess that's just how it all progressed. It's, it's one phone call led to another and it was, I just found myself kind of in between phone calls of two guys that I've respected in two different industries. And, you know, it was really cool to see it all come together on the same day on Monday, September 9th. Um, and we all got a chance to work together to do something that certainly changed the lives of, of those four guys um, that were trapped aboard and, you know, certainly changed changed my life a little bit. But um, but, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I, I'm getting a little bit tired of hearing my own voice right now, but um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's because it is. It is <laughs> Yeah, it's, it is kind of a long, detailed story, but it's uh, it's hard to. I mean, I've I've thought this through so many times, and I still can't make it concise because the way everything added up, just you know, you, you just can't make this shit up. You know, uh, everything <laughs> we got lucky on every single step of the way, and um, so. I mean, from the the first helicopter ride out to the ship, uh, Aaron Bailey and I got dropped off and we had no idea where to go. Uh, you know, you, you see the ship and you're like, wow, OK, that's a that's all right. Try to wrap your head around it. Um, try to make something into a bite sized chunk that you can start in on taking and then you know, you think you're going to be able to stand on top of this thing and look down and see where the tugboats are because you saw them in your helicopter approach. But 
when you're on this thing, you can't see over the edge of it. You can't even get close to it. So, you know, we basically just took a stab in the dark and, and, you know, made anchors where we could and repelled over to the side where we thought the tugboats may be. And things kind of unfolded from there. So I'll actually turn it over to Tom because um, it wasn't long after this that we, Aaron and I made, we, we set up lines, we, we, we established access. Uh, then Tim and Derek Reinhardt came out on the next helicopter. And so now we had four guys and, and that's when we just started to, to get to work um, and really start to pinpoint where these guys may be, uh, what we need to do to, to try to get in to help them somehow. Um, and I think a lot of credit needs to be given to uh, Tim's right hand man in um, Ty Brown. Uh, yeah, definitely. Ty, Ty was it. awesome. Ty was awesome. I mean, Ty's Ty's just one of these guys that um, is one of my favorite people. He he's you know he's always has a good attitude about him, but his presence just brings a certain calming to me anyway. I, I think it. I think most people would agree with that. Um, but every step of the way it felt like he was two or three steps ahead of us um basically when we all left in the helicopters ty went shoreside um trying to you know first of all he's a salvage expert in his own right um he's probably one of the most skilled people i've ever met but the 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 logical step-by-step progression of He's on shore, running around in a pickup truck, just absolutely setting a credit card on fire. Um, Cleaning out Home Depot. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, any hardware store, anything. And meanwhile, like, you know, when we left in the helicopters, nothing's open. So, you know, he's already mapped out the whole town. He knows where everything is. He knows who has what in inventory. And he's hitting it store by store, rental place by rental place. Um, But... You know, to his credit, he almost had to be in an, in an imaginative sense of what we must be going through to start this, to conceptualize what we're going to do next um, so that he could already have the tools being arranged and procured and back to McKinnon Airport so it could come out on another helicopter to us. And I mean, I swear he was he was ahead of us every step of the way. Um so, you know, kudos to Ty Brown on this. I think uh, even not being right there with us until everything was all all started and then he came out on the boats. But, uh, I mean, he was absolutely one of the most integral parts of this, this whole rescue as well, just providing everything that anyone could have needed along the way. So um, I think right about that time, what would you say, Tom, about 10 o'clock? Is uh, you flew into Savannah, then came, then drove down in a Camaro, which is kind of fitting. Yeah, my <laughs> I had my rescue Camaro. That was uh, the only thing they had available at the Savannah airport that they didn't have to like clean or whatever at that time of day. So, you know, I had 600 feet of rope with me and three bags, and you know, like I literally couldn't even fit it all in the Camaro, so I had to just put it in the passenger seat um, and drive down and. At that point, I was able to get information from Sean and from uh, Tim and Ty that just 
drive the damn thing out onto the the runway and put your harness on and get on the Coast Guard helicopter as soon as it's there. And that's kind of what happened. So it was pretty surreal <laughs> uh, to go, you know, stay up all night traveling and then get there. And it's, you know, you go, you hit the ground running literally. So um, it was pretty, pretty, pretty uh, much like a real rescue that I deal with. And it, it's, it starts off with a lot of chaos and a lot of unknowns. And you just try to pack what you think you need and what will work. But you still don't know if that's even going to be the right stuff. So luckily, the New Brunswick uh, Fire Department had given us a bunch of ropes that Sean had already got out there and rigged, which was fantastic. And, and I think it's kind of important to note that one of the reasons why we were the folks, I think, and Sean can correct me on this if I'm not uh, correct on this, but they needed folks to do the rescue that had the ability to go up and down ropes, not just down ropes, but up and down ropes. Uh, based on low tide and when the you know uh, you could get access to that area of the ship, uh, so I think you know it's really important to kind of keep in the back of everyone's minds as they're listening to this that it it wasn't just because um, we had salvage people that were experts. It wasn't just because we had rope skills to go up or down, and it wasn't just because we had rescue experience with a bunch of us or that we had you know the majority of us had been training for grimp. Uh, on a ship, ironically, uh, to do rescue that same year. So every one of those things played into us being the people that were there doing that. And I think that's the thing that Sean was talking about, the, the things that you just can't really put into words that were behind the scenes going on. You know, this was actually in the works for two years, probably before it actually happened. It just so happened that we were able to line up all the puzzle pieces at the same time and they fit together. Um, and you know, you throw in on top of all of that, having folks that have rope skills and rescue skills and have construction skills, uh, on top of that, people who know how to use a mag drill, how to swap out a bit, you know, or know how to fire up a generator or, you know, all of that stuff, you know, and, um, the fact that we were able to get those people, those, those people in the right place at the right time, I think that's, we, we like to say luck, but I don't know if that's luck, um. I think it's just kind of knowing your strengths and everyone else's strengths and what's going to be required for the job and just putting those pieces in play. And that's what kind of happened. And, you know, so if you would have told me, you know, when I was a roofer that all those, you know, 11 years of roofing and nine years of building houses, that that was ever going to benefit me to help save someone's life, I would have said you're full of shit. But um, especially, you know, what you get paid to do that with that work <laughs> um, and why I have no knees left anymore. But, um, but that's important. And I think that's important for folks. If they're looking at this as something that they'd like to get into or do, you know, it, you kind of have to be, you know, a multi-talented or skilled person in lots of disciplines to do this stuff. And, and I think Sean can say that, you know, especially with being on the ship every day and seeing folks come in and people who say they want to, hold their hand up and do this kind of work, you know, you have to look pretty carefully at these folks and see, well, do they have skill, you know, with rope access? Do they have skill with construction? Um, can they handle the, the boredom and the stress, <laughs> you know, that go hand in hand with that kind of work? And so I, I feel pretty fortunate that, you know, we were able to get all that together, do, you know, what I would consider to be pretty basic stuff to make the rescue happen. It's just, it was all basic stuff in multiple fields that, you know, that's why we were there. Yeah, I'd say that's a good way to put it. 
so you know there's a you know there was there was certainly <laughs> there was there there was certainly a number of a number of tools happening um, just to start um, and again with Tim and Ty there it just it kind of keeps your confidence level high that you're with the right people and it's you know you got this and you kind of put your past to work I guess um, but yeah I you know on the I don't know how how deep into this you want to get, Mark. Um, well, I've got some but, questions we can kind of go on right now, and then you guys can continue into the actual what you did to get these folks out. Is that all right? Yeah, it sounds awesome. good. Um, and there's a few things. I mean, you did mention you make – I think you make your own luck. And so, I mean, congrats to you guys on a great rescue. And I just – a few questions that popped up in my head while we're looking at this. And Sean, you mentioned you come from a rope access background. Tom, you've got a lot of mountain rescue experience and some other rescue experience from previous employments. Plus, you've got guys like Tim Ferris and Ty from Defiant Marine. Was there any culture clash here? Or was everybody pretty easy to mesh together on this? Oh, man. Uh, no, there's, there's zero clash. I mean, there's, uh, you know, I, I guess there's... I, you know, I, I feel weird, you know, if, if, if Tim ever listens to this, I, I, I feel like it's one of those things where you can't, you can't describe him unless you know him, um, other than, and Ty as well. I mean, these are just some of the truest, uh, most genuine humans you can be around. Um, they know their shit, they know their people and, you know, there's even if there was with with our groups, we all get we all get to, we all get along fabulously. Um, I mean, you know, from a friendship level, I mean, our daughters play together. Uh, you know, our wives hang out together. It's it's it. You know, there's no conflict of interest when it comes to you know, or or certainly no personality clash at all. Um, but I think both. Tim and Ty and a lot of the guys at Defiant, you, you know, they're just the kind of people you want to spend your time with. Um, and from a personal level, from a professional level. Um, so yeah, that no, no clash at all. I think we, I think we deferred to, um, to Tim's expertise on, you know, how this ship is going to be moving, how it's going to be acting, um, you know, the spaces available to us in the ship, uh, what, what we're going to need to, to get into the particular location of it. But, you know, and then when it came time to, you know, actually after breaching the hull, I think after, you know, he would do the same with Tom and myself and Aaron and, um, and say, okay, well, you know, now, you know, now I'll defer to you guys on the ropes and harnesses and patient packaging and going up and down in this thing, you know, so it's everything worked out in kind of just a true, you know, man to man handshake where you look, the, you look at the guy across from you in the eyes and, you know, you know, when you shake their hand that they're there for you and you're there for them and we have a job to do and, you know, I think we we all are cut from the cloth of like, um, you know, we're not 
we're, we're, we're not going to start something that we're not here with the full intent of finishing whatever this outcome may be. We're going for it. And, um, you know, we're going to, we're all going to do it together and there's, there's no conflict is going to come of it. Okay. No, that's cool. I mean, one of the biggest things we hear from after action reports, especially around rescues is the communication and to have different entities like that, that are, you know, never work together, different backgrounds. It's good to see that there is that kind of coordination and communication that could occur to make this successful. Yeah, that's, I agree, Mark. And, you know, any MCI or mass cat, sorry, I, I always feel bad using acronyms because <laughs> half the people don't know what the hell you're talking about. And the other half are like, why are you explaining this? But a mass casualty incident, anytime you have different agencies showing up to do a rescue under unified command, like we had there with the Coast Guard being, you know, basically in charge, um, you typically see a lot of posturing, a lot of pissing contests, a lot of yelling. Um, people kind of get siloed off into a corner and don't get to do what they're good at. And that was definitely not the case in this. Every single person in, that, that I interacted with, they, they had their portion that they felt comfortable with. And when they did that portion, they said, okay, I'm done. Now you come in and do your part. And that's just what we saw happening. And, you know, I think in terms of like how smoothly something like that can run, given how many chances it has to get, you know, sideways, that one was a really well run uh, mission. And I don't know if that's, you know, to our credit or the Coast Guard's credit or just everyone's credit, I guess, but like Sean could probably agree with this, but there was zero ego involved with anybody that was, you know, on that ship as things were going down and it was un uncannily calm <laughs> to be honest except for the That's sound of retching and barfing and you know things like that from the heat exhaustion and the, the chemicals but other than that it was pretty mellow really <laughs> And that's awesome. And that's the way unified command is supposed to work. The person that has expertise or jurisdiction is supposed to do their bit and then step back and let the next person go. So that's outstanding that it worked that way. Um, Tom, you've got a lot of mountain rescue background, so you get the call for this. What are your, were your thoughts any different going to this than a regular mountain rescue call? And what gear did you grab that you might have specifically just grabbed for this that you wouldn't grab regularly? Or did you just grab your regular stuff? No, uh, I don't wear a full body harness when I do mountain rescue. So okay, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Right there, yes. and I, I don't have steel locking ANSI carabiners I carry with me on an avalanche call or anything like that. So, uh, you know, I have my industrial stuff, and and again, the GRIMP training that we had gone through before GRIMP North America that CMC put on, like you know, the folks at Elevated Safety and Sean and I, we had worked together really closely uh, for a you know almost a year prior practicing all this stuff and then when we did the competition it was actually on a ship so you know we all had a pretty good idea of like what you need to have on you to move around on rope in that kind of environment you know um i wish i would have brought you know some more rope protectors like kevlar you know or hard plastic rope protectors but uh, you know i was at 49.5 pounds on three bags uh with the stuff i had you know because i had the 600 foot of rope so I, what little time I had to go through my stuff, I was pretty selective about what I could bring and what I, I shouldn't bring in terms of what would be valuable, but, you know, also keeping in mind the weight. But I think just as far as the attitude of how you approach a rescue like that versus in the backcountry, um, you know, one of the parallels that I saw, and I put it in the presentation that I did at Sprat last week, 
a week before, I guess, uh, was that I, I looked at this as kind of an avalanche. Like when you do avalanche rescue, um, you have people who are trapped, who uh, are starving for air. The clock is ticking. Um, getting to them is only half of the battle. You have to get them out. Um, you're exposing yourself to risk as a rescuer going in. Uh, typically, avalanche calls are also uh, mass casualty incidents where you're working with other agencies like ski patrol or things that you don't work with normally, like the Coast Guard. Um, and so kind of going in with that thought process in the back of my mind kind of made it a little easier for me to, once we got there, to kind of go, I kind of understand how this is going to play out, at least structurally. And then I know where my little niche is and what little part I can contribute and you just kind of stay inside that area, but keeping an eye out for when you're going to be put on deck, you know, so you're not just sitting there, you know, watching YouTube or FaceTiming, you know, and then all of a sudden it's your turn to do what you got to do. And you're like, what's going on? You know, so that was something that Sean and everybody that was on the ship was really good at. And that was like being in the moment and looking out for the next step, because that's what made it possible for the folks from uh, TNT to come on and do their part underneath the hull and for the Coast Guard to do their part, kind of running things and reporting in the right way at the right times. And so it just really smoothed things out, just kind of understanding how the process worked. Right on. So to summarize right now, Coast Guard's flying you out there. You've left, first guys have left at first light. They're putting a couple rotations of folks out there. Uh, you've got Tim, you've got Derek, you've got Aaron, you've got Sean on the boat, you've got Ty in town. Uh, basically stealing everything he can get out of every store. Tom's just showed up to the airport like a rock star and jumped on a helicopter. <laughs> and now you've got you guys sitting out on this boat. And what happens next? Well, here's a, this is, <laughs> this will be, this is perfect in terms of like Tom's, Tom equating this to an avalanche, avalanche rescue, because the first thing that he did you know, I climbed up to meet Tom to do a gear exchange and, uh, you know, just just help shuttle gear off the helicopter and um, and, you know, kind of just give a quick brief of where we are. And, you know, <coughs> this is a huge surface, you know, I mean, you, you get dropped off. I remember saying to Aaron, you know, the helicopter flies away and you're like, what the hell do we do now? You know, where do we go? Um, it could, we could be nearly 700 feet away from where we're supposed to be. Like your, your first guess better be good. Right. And, you know, obviously by that time we, we, we did have ropes in place. So Tom would have, you know, zoned in right to that and come over and figured it all out. But I, I came up to meet him and, you know, yeah, he's got all this gear, he's got all the stuff. And then, uh, but we we wrap over and get down to where we're doing the work on the hall. And I remember this little yellow baggie coming out. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the the first thing it was for the first, you know, other than quick introductions, the first gear that Tom brought was food and like um you know like vitamin packets and like hydration packets and like you know kind of from that from the bigger picture rescue sense he knew before we did that you know you guys have already been at this for four hours 
it, and you know the sun is now just cresting over the shadow of the ship flare and it's about to get us you know and now the ambient temperature on the hull is pushing 100 degrees and by the end of the afternoon it's it's going to be you know 125 130 uh fahrenheit where we're working in direct sunlight um and you're, you know you're kind of in this dish um if you're not familiar with ships you know the, the 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 starboard side would come into a curvature to where it comes into a singular point that would um house the the prop shaft of the keel and uh, you know it just becomes this big metal bowl and so it, it it's literally just cooking you and um you know i think that was the more i look at things very mechanically i think we all were that day you know what drill bits do we need what types of drills do we need how are we going to do this without setting without you know we had to cold cut the whole thing because um you know quick little factor that played in is the ship was on fire the day before so um you know the fire had snuffed itself out by um becoming oxygen deprived but you know we knew this is a very volatile environment and we knew that reintroducing oxygen to this situation you know could mean that we're as the hull skin heats up and and as the ship gets warm again you know you're you're pushing flashpoints of things and so we're thinking of all these very mechanical steps of how can we cut a hole big enough through, you know, what equates to about three quarters of an inch of steel, um, you know, making roughly a two foot by two foot um, hatch to, to get some guys out of there. But how can we do it without throwing a spark? And, you know, what, what, what steps need to be taken there and tom comes in over the edge and he looks at all of us he's like man you guys need food and water and out comes this little yellow bag of just a recharge kit you know um which i think was just one of those things that like i know i was overlooking it um tom mentioned it earlier you know yeah there was there was some barfing going on that was that was me um (laughs) you know that was that was that was me being dehydrated and and staying up all night not knowing what we're about to get into and then just you know you get in the zone of, of just you know wanting to go 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 and not realizing that you're you're depleting yourself past a point of of function you know um so i think that was that was kind of a big kind of a big thing right away um i know tim said it I think Tim said it best where our job is to reset the clock for these guys. Um, you know, just kind of put yourself in their shoes. And, and in this case, they didn't, they weren't wearing shoes because they had stripped all of their clothing <laughs> to try to stay cool. Um, and again, the ship had been on fire and when it capsized, you know, obviously loss of power. And so they're in the dark, they're in, uh you know pretty pretty nasty water nasty air quality environment and you know you from their mindset they probably didn't have a great idea of whether or not they were they were sinking they were underwater they were 
you know, saying their their last prayers and goodbyes in their head or, or whatever's going on. And I think that's that's kind of the motivation that I took away from it was, you know, Tim's point was let's reset the clock for these guys. They have no idea what's happening on the top side. They have no idea how many people are you know, giving it their best effort to get them out of there. They're just in the dark. They're, they're completely alone um, in awful conditions. And they've been there for, you know, nearly 30 hours at this point and nearly 34, 35 hours by the time all four were out. So that's a hell of a day for those guys, you know, and I think just resetting the clock, um, you know, giving them, Give them that first that that punch the first hole. Just give them daylight and um and then give them air and then give them water and then give them communications and then and I think uh, just stepping it back on our team, Tom reset our clock with one his presence of just okay we've we've got somebody fresh here which you know don't take this the wrong way Tom but like. Obviously, Tom was up all night, too. <laughs> None of us, I don't think any of us slept the night before. So freshness wasn't really in our playbook. But um, the idea of having, you know, food and water um, in the bag was was kind of one of those things that reset our clock to be able to, you know, just put one foot in front of the other and, and get it right. Um so that was that was one of those things that kind of caught me by surprise of of just like I expected all the carabiners and ropes and all that stuff. I didn't think of, you know, nourishing our bodies to be able to take on the task that we're sitting here staring at. Tom, comments on that? Is that something you thought about right away? Is that just left over from the mountain rescue world where, you know, your go pack always has some food in it? Yeah, that that is for me definitely cuz <laughs> I get, uh, you know, I, I definitely have like a, a fuel tank and when it starts getting low, it drops really fast, just like it does on my truck. You know, when you get to a quarter of a tank, you think, well, quarter, well, I was, I drove 400 miles on the first quarter. And why is it saying I only have 200 miles on the last quarter, you know, until I'm on empty. And, you know, once you reach a, a, a certain point, it's really hard to regain, uh, you know, your energy and your, your enthusiasm level and your strength. And so, um, you know, just one of the things that was beat into my head the very first time I ever did any of this stuff for the mountain rescue side or the cave rescue side was that, you know, in a rescue, you know, here's, here's the, here's the pecking order. You're number one, your teammates are number two, and the casualty is number three. And it sounds cruel or harsh, but if you become part of the problem by not taking care of yourself or, um, just taking yourself out of the equation or needing to get rescued yourself. Now you've just diverted resources away from the people who needed your help in the first place. So it just, one of those things that was always beat into my brain, you know, a long time ago by my mentors. And so it's one of those things that just over and over, I've seen where folks start to shut down, they start to withdraw, they're just working their asses off and they just can't function anymore, but they just don't even know that maybe that they're behind the eight ball at that point. And, you know, observing what your teammates are doing and stepping in and getting that morale going or getting some extra food in them. You know, that's not technical rope rescue stuff, but that's just common sense stuff. And and that's just stuff that, uh, you know, for all the time I've been doing this, if if that means that I, I get to be the chef and bring some food and help with in that way, well, then I'm good with even that part. That's great. Right on. So 
Can we get into how did you find where you wanted to drill or cut this hole? And how did you actually go about cutting the hole? Well, the, the search part was kind of by default. Um, like I said, we, we had pretty limited anchors. So the starboard side of the ship is now facing the sky. It's, it's facing upward. So that's, that's your new horizontal surface. Um, and basically there's very limited anchors there. I mean, that without, without drilling more holes or making some sort of mechanical, um, you know, fastening something mechanical to it, which we knew we couldn't do given the environment. Um, you know, Aaron and I just kind of walked it once we, we kind of walked up to the starboard roll off door and, and then back again and got our bearings a little bit. And we knew that the Dorothy Moran had been in contact. The Dorothy Moran is one of the tugboats who had been in contact with, um, you know, with the guys that were trapped on the ship just by way of tapping, you know, but at this point in time, you have, you know, there's four, there's four souls aboard that have not been accounted for, but you have no idea what the tapping actually means. Is that, is that one guy? Is it all four together? Is it, and then we were getting reports that there was tapping coming from two locations. Um, and so our first objective was to, figure out a way to anchor off and rappel down to the Dorothy Moran and make contact with those guys and, and talk to the crew on the Dorothy Moran and say, you know, where are you hearing this from? Are we in the right spot? I mean, where do we need to be? And, um, but there was also the logical side of, you know, there's only, there's only going to be a few places that you can work. Right. So, you know, as far as like coming over, the curvature of the ship flare going towards the keel side. Um, you know, there's, there's only going to be a number of places on the ship that aren't in ballast tanks or double bottom or coffer dams that like, you know, no, no people are going to be in there. Um, so the engineering made sense, but you know, I, I say this now, but I've been on the ship for over 150 days and I know the ship very well at this point, but, you know, that first day it was, it could have been a lunar, a lunar landing as far as my brain was concerned. Um, so, but the, the only logical anchors that we had were on the aft mooring deck and, um, there's some bollard pockets that, you know, just, I think this is one of those like divine intervention things where you couldn't have planned it. Um, the, the anchors only allowed you to repel in, in certain directions without, you know, major pendulum action or just just skipping skipping the areas altogether so um our direction of repel was only so limited and and i think we i think things came together in a sense of we ended up repelling down into this what ended up being a good work area because it was kind of a concave surface of where the the hull flares into the uh, the prop shaft of the keel, where you know it kind of gives you a little a little bit of a flat surface to work and a little bit of a dish, um, and you know so that's really your only working walking surface. Um, 
and you know so that's where we went to go make contact with the dorothy moran and then we just ended up in that area but i think a couple of things were probably happening looking back at it is you know these these four guys were all in the engine room uh three of which were in the greater engine room and one was in the engine control room which we'll get to that part of the story later but um it's it's an isolated area within the engine room and so i think there's two things that happened you know we didn't really our our intuition and our skill didn't lead us to them i think our activity led them to us if if i really had to like play what was going on inside that hull skin while we were you know scurrying about above them or you know just outside of the hull skin from them i think whatever noises we were making whatever vibrations we were giving off they were probably migrating towards that location um not so much us finding them but them finding us and um and they knew the ship, right? Like the, these guys, the 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 guys that work in the engine room, that's that's their job. They they know that engine room perfectly. So as soon as you know, obviously they're going to know where the high spots are. They're going to know where uh, what pipe racks they can get on, where they can stay above the waterline, things like that. So um, I think just our movements probably led them to us more so than us finding them i guess um and then you know as soon as you start up any kind of tools um you know tim had a great plan of the you know i mentioned the reset the clock but you know let's drill a quarter inch hole let's 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 get an air monitor in there and just see what we're dealing with first of all so we know what tools we can introduce into this equation and then and then let's get a half inch hole and let's, you know, let's give them some daylight. Let's just give them that one little, that one little half inch hole is going to just be like a beacon of help, a beacon of light, something that they can see from wherever they are in the engine room and start, you know, come to the light. Right. And, um, that's, that's kind of what we did. So I, I think the, the sound of the drills, um, and, you know, as the day went on, it was like, I mean, we, we went through, God, man, we went through so many drill bits, just like we had mentioned, anything Ty could get off any shelf that was as stores were opening. Um, so it kind of just went that way of, of, you know, a small hole to see what kind of thickness of the hole skin we're dealing with and then see what the environment is inside. Okay, cool. Um, now we're going to do a half inch hole and we're going to shine a light in and, uh, you know, I'll never forget uh, Tim shining his flashlight in that half inch hole and calling in and just trying to establish any communication. And keep in mind, these guys uh, do not speak any English, so um, or very limited. And, you know, so we did make somewhat visual and then um, voice contact afterwards, which you know, I think just lit a fire over under everybody to be like, all right, this is real. We got, you know, we just confirmed there's, we have four souls aboard and they are alive. They're, they are ready to get out of there. So um, now we need to figure out the bigger plan of how do we make a hole in the side of the ship 
big enough to get them out or us to go in to help them out, whatever the case is, this now it becomes a mechanical issue. And, um, and again, that's where, you know, that's as the rental places were opening. Cause all right, we, we established with the, the, we had a four gas monitor and an air gas monitor or a five gas monitor that, um, you know, the, with the pump that, so we could actually send a, um, a sample tube in and, and figure out what we're dealing with. And, um, from that point, we, we knew that, you know, there's, there, this is a pretty volatile environment. We can't throw a spark. Um, so grinders are out, you know, abrasive wheels are out. We can't grab a demo saw and just cut a hole in this thing. We can't use torches. Um, you know, all the fast solutions were negated right away just due to the, the environment on the inside of the ship. So, um, you know, Tim went to the mag drill, the, you know, an electromagnetic drill press essentially. And by that time, I think it was right about when some of like the commercial, um, uh, rental places were becoming open for business. And I think Ty was already pounding on their doors. Um, and so we had, you know, first we had one mag drill flown out to us. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's get as many hole saws as we can. Um, and we were just burning them up, you know, just so, and then actually I should step back one, one step because we, after we confirm that there are four guys, they, they know each other's location. We don't know all four of their locations specifically yet, but they know amongst their group that there are four of them. They are all alive and they know how to find each other. Um, the next step was to drill a four inch hole, which would allow us to, um, you know, send bottles of water in. We were going to send, uh, we sent in, uh, radios so that they could communicate with a translator from the ship. One of their uh, colleagues was brought out on a fast boat to just, you know, be able to tell us their condition that the, that was the part of the language barrier we couldn't get. Um, you know, if anybody's hurt, how hurt, um, if anybody needs special uh, medical attention or special equipment, you know, what do we need to get, what do we need to get going here? Um, but the four inch hole was just a, you know, just a off, off the shelf hole saw in an off the shelf, 18 volt Milwaukee drill with a Diablo hole saw. Um, we actually destroyed the drill. Um, but that four inch hole allowed us to pass the water bottles, pass like, you know, electrolyte popsicles and, 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 you know, flashlights for them. Um, but at that time, right before we started drilling the hatch, we, you know, the question of like, how can we get positive pressure airflow into these guys? And, and that was another one of those like uncommunicated, just, you know, it says a lot about the relationship with Tim and Ty and how well they think and how well they work together. You know, Tim has the aha moment of let's get a fucking leaf blower. You know, we have a four inch hole. Let's, you know, let's fire up a leaf blower and put hurricane force winds into this hole for these guys. Some kind of cool air. 
Um, and as he's making that call to tie on shore, Ty's already grabbed the only two off the shelf backpack leaf blowers that Home Depot had. They're already in the truck en route to the airport. Um, and it was just stuff like that that you couldn't possibly plan or make up. It was already happening. Um, and so, yeah, from there, you know, uh, Ty got us the first the first mag drill um, and a pile of bits. And, you know, basically it was a couple of us just, you know, somebody on the tool and then somebody with cutting oil and, and just squirting the bit, keeping it cool, trying to make it last. And, and then the second mag drill came up and we ended up drilling. What was it, Tom? 44 holes, 44 holes and 44 razor sharp little points surrounding this hole. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of defeating at first because, you know, the first hole when, you know, when you're using a, a, a hole saw, it likes to um, it likes to be able to clear its chips. Uh, typically, with, like with metal or anything, you'd, you'd, you'd be you're either going to use like a high speed steel bit or um, an annular bit or that that has carbide teeth and, you know, annular bits aren't off the shelf anywhere. So we're just using high speed steel and and hoping we could keep it cool enough to not just burn up on us. And, you know, the first hole took about 15 minutes, which, you know, you start adding it up in your mind of like how big of a hatch you might need to make. And you're like, damn, we're going to run out of time here. Um, but then the second hole, when you Siamese them up, you kind of overlap the, the, the radius of the hole saw into its last hole and it's able to clear its chips as it's, as it's drilling into the hole that you just made so um you know then we were down to about two three minutes on each hole and then the second drill showed up and so we were able to kind of you know just just compound our efforts there and by the time the second drill showed up we knew our method you know we we knew how much oil we needed you know how how quickly we needed to rotate people through on the mag drill and and just and it's just stuff like that, that like, uh, you know, like Tom's saying, I mean, with, with, uh, the tool side of things, the, you know, just being able to come together as a group of four mechanically inclined guys to say like, Hey, that bit's not going to work. This one will, you know, um, just how many extension cords do you need? You know, this is stuff that you don't plan the how far away is the Dorothy Moran at low tide versus at high tide? And will the generator keep up with two mag drills? Are we going to be trip, tripping breakers the whole time? You know, what's just the, the small logistical steps that it took t- for the basic functionality of the tools to work was stuff that just, I think like Tom alluded to, I mean, with everyone there having, a long history of trades backgrounds and some mechanical savvy. I think it, you know, it added up to a working process instead of just like continuing to second guess your methodology and just, you know, know that you were somewhat on the right track, but you just needed to power through and everybody kind of knew what was going to happen next. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, from there we, we drilled out 44 holes um, and you know, I, I I would have to look back at my photo log and and 
I was, you know, at each rotation out, I would step back and just take photos. So I had a timestamp of everything. And then, um, but as the tide came up, that really helped us a lot. Um, because now the, the bow of the Dorothy Moran is within a ladder shot of the prop shaft. Um, and then it comes up a little bit more and now you're only three or four feet away from guys like stepping on board to, to assist you. And now the waters are flowing, you know, now there's, now there's ice packs. Now there's, now there's food. Now there's just all the stuff that just keeps pouring off of the boat to us is, you know, at six o'clock in the morning at low tide, that, that boat was, you know, the, the uppermost part of that bow was 12 feet below us off of the prop shaft with no real accessibility. So, um, you know, just the time of day, everything kind of worked out to where honestly, if it was, if it were opposite, it, it would have really affected our productivity. You know, if we had started at high tide with the boat slowly, um, coming away from us, we, we would have had a much tougher time because that's about the point in time where we, you know, we set up a shade tent. We set up, um, you know, just something to try to keep people cool and keep people working. And, you know, once we cleared the, the plate of steel that, that made the hatch, um, now you've got this kind of labyrinth of pipe work and, um, just stuff that needs to get out of the way. So just to make room for, to be able to lower a ladder in, you know, seems like an easy thing, but like once you get the ladder in the ladder is going between handrails that were vertical, but now they're horizontal. And so it's not just a ladder shot. It's, it's a, it's, a couple of steps on a ladder, but then kind of climb out around a few handrails and then back to the ladder and then, you know, squeeze yourself through, you know, 12, 14 inches to where just, just to stay on. the It's kind of ugly, you know? Um, and that's where everyone else came in, in to the bigger part of the rescue is, you know, we, we did our job in resetting the clock and, uh, you know, making a man way, if you will. And then, um, and then there were teams ready for us. There were teams ready, just, just geared up, ready SCBAs ready, um, to be able to get in and, and you know, from, <laughs> It was funny because like the first two guys, uh, they came out almost faster than we could get the ladder down. You know? <laughs> they were finished with that whole thing. eh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as soon as the ladder, I mean, it wasn't stable. It wasn't like ready for someone to come up, you know, and, you know, you're trying to like, you know, just say, Hey, you know, hold on one second. We're, we're almost there. We're not ready yet. We're almost there, but, <laughs> You know, they had a way out and they came out, you know, <laughs> and, yeah, um, half naked and covered in oil and barefoot trying to climb a ladder. You know, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the third guy, um, you know, I think he was kind of overcome at that moment with just one, the fact that, OK, this was real that we, you know, 
now he's seeing faces up there and he's hearing voices and you know this is real he's gonna get out of here but um you know he kind of had that that i don't know if it was panic if it was just or his body had just had enough and you know he kind of just laid down on the pipe rack and and you know just went you know couldn't help himself any further so now it was time for us to reset and 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 let the the crews that have now mobilized to come to assist with all this you know we needed to reset we were kind of at our efforts end i think where um there's a crew on the boat that's ready to come in and go into confined space with the right gear we were all set on the top side of the confined space and, and entry and retrieval, but we weren't prepared to go in as far as the, the right equipment goes. So, um, plus we all had beards. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. There's no, no SCBAs happening properly for us. So, um, so TNT, actually the contractor who is now on the job as, uh, the prime salvage, um they were called in because they have a, their own fire response and rescue team um along with a u.s fire pump and you know as the tugboat came up to a level where they could get on the ship and help out uh they were more than ready and they went in packaged the third guy up in a sked and and we set up a topside retrieval system on a tripod and and you know very just bare bones industrial stuff uh you know we didn't have any like sexy vortexes or pterodactyls or anything that would like articulate to the whole shape um very well so you know the tripod was pretty tippy on where it was and uh, we had to kind of back tie it with just firefighters and us um meat anchors meat anchors <laughs> yeah which i think at that point in time we were more than happy to play that role of you know throw a rope in your chest ascender and sit back and hold tight right um but uh yeah package the third guy and and then set up a four to one to retrieve him out and and that's you know that's where it got a little little shaky um you know just you, you kind of things you don't think about certainly that i didn't think about is what someone who doesn't have any clothing on in a harness that doesn't fit him very well but package the best we could um what an oily body does inside of a sked um and you know things were getting a little wonky on the retrieval side so uh you know we just kind of fought through it and and made it work but it, it it wasn't it wasn't clean it wasn't sexy it was just pure work and effort um but the uh i'll, I'll stop talking and let tom tell the story of the fourth guy because that's where it gets that's where that's where it gets a little bit and especially being in the ship as long as i have been after the fact i still go in the engine room thinking to myself i can't believe i cannot believe that this was pulled off um 
just the the way that it was all set up. And I should mention, you know, when we first made the four inch hole, we had made contact with three guys. They let us know that there was a fourth man in the engine control room, which is um, isolated behind um, a window that's, you know, supposedly rated as explosion proof glass. So you've got that in the back of your mind is like, how, how are you going to breach that? But um, they didn't ask for immediate assistance. The first thing they asked for was tools so that they could try and go free their shipmate from this control room. And I mean, that's just one of those things that you, you know, the human factor of holy shit, you know, as ready as they are to get out of here, they're they're willing to go back further into the darkness to to try to get one of their own before themselves, which, you know, just kind of drives you a little bit further to, you know, if they're willing if they're willing to be in those conditions for, you know, <laughs> approaching this time, 32, 33 hours and still go back in and try to rescue their buddy then like we we need to get our we need to kind of ignore our fatigue and and just keep going because they're ready to and um so yeah that's i'll I'll turn it over to tom for the fourth man um but uh go ahead uh well I'll i'll just finish off with the third guy a little bit too because uh you know if you've ever tried to do a horizontal lowering uh, in a sked and you don't have the two uh you know the lifting bridles that it comes with you know that it's just not going to work and so we realized that as soon as we got the third guy out but luckily we had uh the titanium cascade litter that uh ty and uh tim always had with us and so we were able to transfer them over into you know basically the stokes that was set up to do a horizontal lowering because that was the rigging that we had been using for grimp practice you know for the last year was that setup so um that's how we got him into that and then we were able to do that as far as i know the first real rescue was with the clutch um so aaron lowered uh me and the subject in the, the litter down uh to the coast guard ship below us uh unfortunately it was only on one rope so we, we can't count that 20 minutes as rope access time in our log books so single rope no no bueno but uh um and then you know that we all took off uh for the coast as fast as they could go but unfortunately they kind of started backing away before i had detached from the the system up above so we i was on we were almost breaking out the knife because they were in such a hurry to get this guy to shore um but we got it you know detached really quick and then came back and they had started working at that point to get the fourth person out from the engine room like sean had mentioned and just I would say luckily, but I don't think luck has anything to do with it. But one of the things that Ty had bought was uh, a really good DeWalt uh, angle grinder, like, you know, the four inch one. And he had thought to buy some good diamond tip cutting blades with that, you know, that would cut through that reinforced glass or plexiglass or whatever it is there and, and still not throw sparks. So, you know, they had tried using their Halligans at first to bust through that and that wasn't working. Uh, and, you know, these guys at that point, they could only spend a, a few minutes at a time down there between the heat 
Um, and, you know, just to move around, they had to remove their SCBAs at, at some point. Uh, and so that was pretty alarming for us that we're topside because now we had guys that were below deck with no retrievable, no retrieval system on, not on supplied air. And a couple of them had taken off their harnesses to give to the subjects so that they could, you know, have those on them when they came out. So uh, Sean and I kind of made eye contact at one point and we realized that, you know, our, our asses were really hanging out in the breeze. And if something went wrong below decks, we would have to have somebody to go in and rescue the rescuers. And so we pulled Derek aside and said, you know, hey, you're the only clean shaven guy here. Why don't you go sit in the air conditioning for a while and rehab? And you've been fit tested before, you know, so you're going to be our guy uh, that goes in there and rescues somebody if they go down. And here's here's how we're going to do that. And here's what we're thinking we got. So we kind of started coming up with a plan at that point to make that work. And uh, it just became very involved uh, to try and make that work. Uh, you know, it was just getting to be a lot of stress on us that these guys were, you know, coming out curling up into a fetal position, you know, beside the hole and puking for a little bit and then offering to go right back in. So um, luckily they were able to use the, the angle grinder to get the job done. And the fourth guy was kind of like the first two. He was like, let me get the hell out of here. <laughs> you know, he just rocketed right up there. And, you know, at that point, you know, we'd been using so much oil on the mag drills and trying to get you know, the holes clean and not burn up all the bits. So there's oil all over the curved surface of the hull. And so if you got anywhere near, you know, where it started to curve and go down, you basically would just take a ride right down into the ocean. So a lot of our uh, rappel lines that we used in the beginning became fall arrest lines, you know, uh, travel restraint lines. But these guys were barefoot and they're walking on all these metal shavings and oil and, you know, who knows how hot the hull was at that point. So Sean and I were kind of the shepherds kind of make sure that as soon as they got out of the hole, they didn't just walk out of the hole and <laughs> slide right down into the ocean on national media, because at this point, helicopters were filming everything that we were doing. You know, um, everyone on the Coast Guard ships was FaceTime. Did I lose you, Tom? You still there, Sean? Yeah, I'm still here. Still here. We lost. Back of my line, knowing. Oh, there we go. Tom, can you start again from helicopters filming? We lost you for a couple there. Oh yeah, sir. Uh, Wi-Fi. Uh, yeah. So helicopters were filming everything we did. You know, every time we would go take a leak, you know, that was on film too. And so there's the stress of knowing that what you're doing is going to potentially be recorded and viewed, and maybe held against you if you screw the pooch, you know, down the road. So we had at least in my mind, that was on my radar of something like, oh, crap, you know, we've got to pay extra attention to what we're doing here and making sure that, I hate to say it, that we look good, but, you know, that we did it right is what we were, I had in my mind, because everything was being recorded. And that's something that, you know, in the backcountry, we don't normally have to contend with when I'm doing things, you know, nobody brings cameras in for that stuff or has service. And they definitely don't have a helicopter hovering right over you filming it. So, um, so that was a little bit of a challenge, but when the, the fourth guy came out, Sean and I basically kind of, everybody was high-fiving, but Sean and I, you know, I'm pretty proud to say that we were the two that kind of said, Hey, wait a minute, we're not done yet. This guy's still got to get onto the other ship. And if he takes one step the wrong way, he's going to slide right down into the ocean. So we had to wear with. 
think you're right. Your cell cut out again there, Tom. Here, Wi-Fi. Oh, uh, Wi-Fi again. Goddamn technology. You guys had the wherewithal. Anyways. You still uh, no. got me? I got yeah, you. Yeah, we're, we're here. <laughs> All right. I'm going to stop talking because I'm tired of the internet going in and out here. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was, uh, it, you can, you know, and that, that's kind of the news clip that, that went around quite a bit was right at, you know, because obviously there was, you know, good reason to celebrate with, uh, with the fourth man, the final guy coming out and, and everybody's safe and sound. And, um, but you, you can watch it on the news, you know, Tom coming from the stern, I'm coming from the bow and we literally just make a V in front of this guy to where, you know, both of our ropes come together to where he almost has like a little bit of like handrails, if you will. And then I, you know, doing the Sprat thing, I'm, I just took my, my longer, my longer cow's tail and made a connection to his harness and, but when we transferred him to the vessel, that was kind of like the big, you know, that was the big relief moment. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think we probably scared him a little bit cause there was, it's, it's, it's on international media, but you can, you can see that like at a certain, there, in, in all kindness, I was still in a point of like kind of losing my patience with, um, just still, you know, still being in the process of all this. And so, um, and not like losing my patience from an attitude perspective, but just like losing, you know, just, just starting to fade. Right. So, um, I make a connection to him and then as we're standing there, you know, there's, there's some celebration going on, but, um, there's a moment where I just kind of bear hug the guy and turn him around and set him on the, the tugboat where the other guys just grab him. And, you know, he was obviously very elated to be out of that hole, but <laughs> at the same time, all of us were like, <laughs> get down in that tugboat, man. <laughs> we're not <I'm> done. done. <laughs> like we are not done. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean that's that's the long that's the lengthy version of of uh of how all that went down from you know the the mid-morning call on September 8th through um the uh the final actions of the afternoon of September 9th. Um and I think uh you know probably you know I don't like I mentioned before, I, I don't, I don't deal with the, the emotions of a rescue as often as trained professionals do like, like you guys, or like a lot of the guys that elevated safety had, um, you know, it was pretty heavy for me, but the, um, the, the, the great, the greatest part of it, the culmination of it all was we, the next day, you know, Tom and I went back to work. We, uh, we went out to the ship and, and started in on, 
what we thought to be like the the start of the salvage operation you know laying out the frames of the ships so they can be identifiable from a helicopter and you know just getting up there and starting things under tim's direction and um you know yeah we you know we kind of we didn't i wouldn't even say we did much in the way of celebrating it we kind of just nearly fell asleep at our on with our face in our beer at a restaurant the night of the rescue but the next day we recharged and we went to work and um started dealing with the ship as it as it sat and uh i think that that afternoon is where it, it kind of all came together for the four of us on the elevated safety side being uh tom aaron derek and myself um getting back to our hotel after that day of work the the crew of the golden ray is at our hotel um you know happenstance that they had lodged all of the guys off of the golden ray in the same hotel we were staying at and so when we came into the lobby um we got to you know see the four guys that we had just spent that time and effort working with to to get them out of it um and you know and by this point in time they're they're you know they're hydrated and they're fed and they're you know the they're a couple not, of them not, had oily, their, not oily and have clothes on <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and there's guys to me yeah and it was you know it was cool because like a you know just in the small window of response that we had you know obviously other gears are turning too with with the company they work for the ship owners the salvage crew you know there's a lot of people now involved and um you know what we saw was the the owners of the ship um brought their families in you know we we got to witness like the first um reunion if you will of one of the guys i mean you don't really put an age on the guys as they're coming out because but man the next day you realize that like these guys are only like you know, 25, 26, maybe 30, I don't know, but they were, they were young and, um, and the, the, the owners of their company or, or whoever facilitated it brought their families to meet them at the hotel. So, I mean, they're flying across the world to come and be reunited with their family members. And, um, you know, we, we were able to walk into the lobby and, kind of i think it kind of surprised all of us and took our breath away a little bit of like whoa okay you know we can we can shake these guys hands and give them a hug and you know um it just tell not not only you know obviously they they gave they gave us some thanks but you know we had a chance to tell them how you know i think after another day we we just we admired them so much for what they endured that it was it was a good opportunity to you know have that exchange but then we were able to witness one of one of the youngest guys you know we were talking with when his fiance arrived from south korea at the hotel and just seeing that 
you know, seeing them reunited after all of it was kind of, I don't know, man. It was one of those moments where you're like, you know, this, this is something you couldn't, you know, you'd, you'd have a hard time putting into a screenplay, but it's just, uh, I think it was one of those times where you just kind of sit back and, you know, sit next to your buddies on the couch and realize what everybody just went through together and, and, you know, kind of, you know, it was just, for me, it was very, it was heavy. It was, it was, it was a good, it was a really good culmination of, I don't think, I mean, you guys, I mean, Mark and Tom, you guys can obviously relate to this more than I can, but like, I don't, in my limited experience, I don't believe that you would always have the opportunity to follow up with somebody that you just helped in one of their worst, on one of their worst days, you know, um, or see them again and shake their hand and say, yeah, no, it was, I'm glad we met. I'm glad we met when we did, you know, um, which was unique for me and and kind of wrapped it all up as like a, a a good way to close the chapter of of that part of the golden ray job and um i don't know I, i'm more asking the question now i mean is is that is that something that you actually get the opportunity to do and as professional rescues professional rescuers and volunteer rescuers actually follow up with your subjects and have them say thank you and have you know kind of express a little bit of what happened tom you want to go for that um i think it happens sometimes probably not often enough um and then i think just for a lot of us especially probably some of the folks tuning into the podcast you know we'd rescue four you know mannequins off of a fire tower all day long and never really think too much about it but when it's four human beings and you meet their family that basically they're not grieving when you see them, they're, you know, ecstatic and full of tears and joy, you know, and you think of all the rope nerdery you go through and all the hours you put in getting your certs and all this crap and things that are kind of frustrating and the politics of what we do sometimes. And, you know, you get one moment like that where you see a, a, a young man and a young woman reunited after they both thought that they were, you know, not going to be ever seeing each other again and that gives you like 10 years worth of juice you know to put up with all the bullshit and keep doing this again and maybe give someone else the same chance that these two just got you know that's why i do it and those moments you live for years off of those and you just can't underestimate how powerful that kind of stuff is i know derek especially was really really moved by what we saw there at the hotel and it's, it's powerful stuff. And I think that's, you know, the rope stuff is awesome and it's fun, but you know, for me, it's, and I think it is for Sean now too, it's kind of a means to an end of making a difference for people. And, and I think, you know, in my mind that made that whole rescue just, just incredible that we got to close the book and watch that chapter. Like Sean was saying, we got to witness families being reunited and, and, and Mark, I know, you know, this too, a lot of times you put someone on an ambulance or a bus and you don't see him again or even know who the person's name was. And you don't know if they live or die. Seat. You get nothing out of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that happens for us all the time too. And being able to like follow that through and see that happen and witness that, man, that's just amazing. Just truly amazing. And those guys are the real heroes of this, you know, what they put up with for all that time down there 
not knowing if they're going to live or die and you know like sean said willing to help out the last guy that was stuck in the engine room by asking for tools you know those guys are amazing and and what they did is amazing we looked at at it as kind of doing our job and and that's how i i think we all approached it as we were working we were working and doing a job and uh i think those guys were the ones that got put in the circumstances without knowing what was going on and that's you know that's what makes them exceptional absolutely yeah well put um a couple quick questions i know we've been at this for a while but uh i actually you know, I'm I'm enthralled just listening to this. I love hearing it from the rescuer and thinking about the rescuee's point of views. But a couple of questions that have come up in my mind that I think people would want to know: What skills, rope-wise or other, do you think really helped you with this? I mean, we we talk so much about cross training now with rescue and sprat and arb techniques and all these things that come together. Was there particular skills that you would say? You know, hey, this is what if you're going into this industry, this is what you need to do or level one skills for rescuers. Yeah, whether I rod a sprat, you know, ARAA, being able to go up and down a rope and having some basic anchoring skills, I just can't state how important that is uh, for rope rescuers. You know, in my mind, if you don't have vertical mobility, and you call yourself a rope rescuer, and by, I don't mean like climbing a rope with two prussics, I mean being proficient, you know, you just gotta have that if you're gonna use this as your your calling card for your trade, is, is vertical mobility. Right on, Sean, anything to add to that? Oh, I think it's, I, I, you know, yeah, I, I think uh, like we talked about a little bit in, previously was just um you know the access portion regardless of what your rope discipline is i mean you're you know now i look at it this way where on this salvage project the main teams that that we work with every day are all divers and you know no one here gets paid to climb or to repel or to dive um it's all about what you do when you get to the location of the job and what what your tool awareness is, what your proficiency level is, uh, what your trade skills are. I, I think, you know, and I, I would think this one was fairly unique in its location more than anything. But I think, uh, you know, it's why you guys do so much cross training in the firehouses with different tools of you know i mean it's it, you the the rope stuff alone is is never other than some i mean i don't know man i i think it's really just in the training center that you're able to only use rope skills to like progress through a mock rescue um i think in most cases you know you're either gonna have to like i mean in tom's case like shit man your rescues start off on like four wheelers and snow machines so like you at least like general basic awareness of you know small engines and you know driving skills whatever else may go into it but like the rope stuff as tom said was like very basic you know we vertical mobility was a big factor uh, it's about it's about a 70 foot ascent 
um, from where we were up to the starboard side of our staging area. So we were up and down that a few times. Um, but beyond that, it was all just knowing the tools, uh, being aware of how they work and knowing what to expect and what to need next. So, yeah, I think uh, the rope stuff was actually pretty, in my mind, a, a pretty minor component of of this rescue. It was it was it was far more, um, you know, tool specific and 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 tool dependent. Um, as far as the skill sets involved, that actually facilitated most of this. That's it's a good point. I mean. I think you hit something on the head there where you say it's only really in a training scenario where if you're using strictly ropes to go through it. I mean, Tom's alluded to it. You've alluded to it. I can allude to it where even putting ladders down over embankments to make it less steep. I mean, we're always using some other tool or some other process in order to make it easier and make it faster in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Definitely. Um, Definitely. One other thing, Grimp was brought up a few times here, and I know out there there's some comments around whether Grimp days are valid, if you know if it's really testing anything or if it's really accomplishing anything. And from your guys' point of view, having done a couple of Grimps, North America and Europe, and having done this, were there any benefits to having that training in the, your back pocket? Tom, take uh, it, man. Yeah, 100%, definitely. Um, I, I, I just, you know, the I, irony of being, you know, training to do a grimp competition on a ship and not all that afterwards getting called to a real rescue on a ship, um, it, it just couldn't be stated enough for me personally, at least how much that helped me. Just moving around, knowing how to move around, knowing the quarters you're working uh in what just the environment you know and then like i said being on the ocean like i don't, I don't do rescues on the ocean it's the first one i've ever done um, but you know, just having that mindset of dealing with the stress of competition how that can hone your skills you know and, and I, i'll just throw in a real quick i know this is going really long but you know i, I just really have been feeling a lot that i i have concerns about some of the grimp stuff that's going on where people who don't really do the stuff and we lose you there. Making a career out of sorry. Sorry, people that don't really do stuff. Go ahead, making a career yeah, out of just just the folks that don't do rescue rope rescue for a living or don't do rope access, and their living that they're doing now is competing in grimp, and they don't ever touch a real person. They don't slap a bandaid on anyone. They don't ever pick up a torch or a drill, but they're they're competing in grimp, and that's what they do year round. And and I think that's getting away from the spirit of the intention of this, and that's to make better rescuers so we can help people live longer lives and happier lives. So for me, it's a kind of a double-edged sword. Grimp is fun, and it's cool, and it really helped me get my skills up so I could do my job better. But I also see that people are looking at it as a sport almost, and, and that concerns me. No, that's well, well said and well thought. Um. We're into like an hour and 46. Is there anything else either of you want to add on to this? Oh, man. No, I think, uh, yeah, I think we're, I, from my perspective, I think we're good. I, you know, I, 
it's funny, man. I'm sitting uh, sitting here about to do and you know, oh five hundred start to my reporting of today, and then uh, get back out on the same ship. So. <laughs> um <laughs> groundhog yeah. day all over again yeah. it <laughs> is it was, with you <laughs> it's it is you know that part of it is cool i mean this has progressed from a rescue to seeing where rope access fits into what most people would perceive as a very new industry for rope access you know offshore maritime salvage is not a place where you typically think of of rope access being a, a good you know one of the the key arrows in the quiver but um you know i can't really say too much about the actual salvage operations um for sensitivity levels but the you know uh, the the amount of things that we've been able to implement through our uh standby rescue i mean a, a ship is one big confined space you know um once you start going in through certain holes so um i think that that part like tom said you know training as a team uh specifically for rescues i guess uh with the mindset of being on a battleship in the uss iowa um has definitely helped our team and you know mark with thank you for all of your support through this salvage process because ronan's been here with us um for like a, I think what the first three months of the project, uh, we had a constant one or two people from Ronan coming in to help us out with this. Um, it's certainly, there's certainly no playbook for it. Um, and I think that's, that's the part of tie it back into the grim question. That's the part that's, that's come up for me where, you know, you kind of set yourself up for a rescue, but you don't know what it's going to be until somebody outlines it for you. And here's, very much the same way where, you know, you may get a job task that's in a really difficult location to access, but then, you know, you kind of have to dissect it from, well, if it was that hard to get to for rope access guys, how, how, how hard is it going to be to get, you know, a welder out of that area or, you know, an engineer out of that area or whatever it may be. So, um, so yeah, I think, uh, that that kind of concludes it for me of just the this thing's still going on it's 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 getting some attention but um yeah it all started with it all started with the unknown and and <laughs> going and figuring some stuff out with some tools and here we are still figuring some stuff out with some tools so thanks for all your support on it and uh you know I do want to just take a quick second to say for everyone involved uh Coast Guard, uh, Smith Salvage, Don John, um, TNT, U.S. Fire Pump, um, Defiant Marine, you know, every, everyone, there was a, so many people that I don't have the wherewithal to, to name right now, the Glen County Fire and Rescue, the Chief Scott Cook for giving us the initial ropes to go in with. I mean, so many people had a big hand in this that, you know, never showed up on the news. Um, but man, there was, there was a lot of people supporting this, not just the four or five or six of us that, you know, the helicopters with cameras were hovering above there. Were, 
you know, there are crews on those tugboats that stayed out there night after, you know, for the same 36 hour stretch, um, making sure to do a, do a sounding and response on the hour, every hour in the dark of night to make all this work. So, um, you know, just big thanks to everybody involved and thanks for, uh, taking some time to hear it out, man. Yeah, Mark. And thank you for putting this together and asking us to be on here. And it's pretty cool to talk about this stuff. Sean and I talk about it all the time. So it's, it's kind of, it feels routine in, in a little bit of a way sometimes, but, uh, it, it's, uh, something we're still pretty proud to be a part of and just also a shout out to our employer harkin for supporting us for doing all of this because not every employer would say hey just go start doing this stuff and just let us know how it turns out we'll just keep paying you and we'll support it and you know it's it's pretty unusual to get that kind of support so you know thanks to all the folks at harkin and elevated for supporting this and and again mark for all the stuff you're doing with these podcasts because it's a it's a great service to the industry well, we're trying. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I'll ring it off there then, gents. Right on, guys. All cool. right. All right. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. See ya. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.